Last week, we looked at kind of a unique account of the Christmas story in John chapter 1. It's not, I think, typically where you and your families might turn on Christmas morning to read about the birth of Jesus because there's, there's really not a whole lot about a birth. There's no manger in John chapter 1. There's no angels, no shepherds. It's the Word of God. The Word became flesh. It's still a Christmas story. It's from a different, more of a theological look at who Jesus is. Well, this morning, we're going to go to one of the more traditional ones. So open up to Matthew chapter 1. My family has something we do each Christmas. Uh, We have a book called the Advent Book. And you open it up and on December 1st, you read the first page and and there's like doors and really nicely illustrated. You open it up and there's a passage of scripture. And so what we did, I think we started this when Lindsay was a little girl, uh, we began to have, Lindsay would read the first door, and then when Ethan came along, he started reading the second door, and then Gibson reads the third, Ainsley the fourth. And, and so what you do is, uh, December 1st, you read door one, December 2nd, you read door one and two, December 3rd, you read door one, two, three. So they're rotating through, and so each year, they're reading the same passage of scripture over and over again. I didn't realize this would happen. Maybe my wife did. She tends to be smarter on these things. But, but our kids have memorized a lot of this. So it's really cool. I mean, we, we almost don't even need the book anymore. Uh, we're, we can get up through about the middle of December with them knowing all of the passages. But one of the passages that always sticks out is right at the beginning of the book. And, and it's, his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's at that point in that book, when we read that first one to kind of start off all the other readings, we we read it that way. His name shall be called Emmanuel. And the kids all say, which means God with us. The other one is, is when the shepherds or I'm sorry, the angels get to their, their account, you know, their story, their, their news. And, and it says, and the angel said, glory to God in the highest heaven. And I think that was in the Advent reading this morning. And I had to bite my tongue because that's where we all chime in too. And we all, we all recite that one. So I had to catch myself this morning. It would have looked weird. But his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Think about that. The God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the God of perfect holiness, righteousness, and justice. On Christmas morning, took on flesh, was born a human in a manger to be with us. What? I mean, we could stop right there, right? Amen. Close the book. Let's go. We're not going to. We could. I think the message that we are not alone is so essential in the world today. I think the message that you are not alone, that you are not abandoned, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're feeling, Jesus is God with us. What a powerful and important message for us to keep in front of us. And I don't want to lose that. I don't want to overlook that important message that God wants to be with you, to comfort you. But I also, this morning, I want to help you see what I believe they would have understood when they heard that phrase, God with us. Because it is comfort, it is encouraging, but I believe it goes so much deeper than that. Let me read for us Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, 
he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. Here Matthew is telling the accounts of the angels announcing the birth of Jesus. And and he records what he learned, what he was told, what God is superimposing him to write, and he writes that down. But I love that he gets to this point where it's, she will give birth to a son, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And it's like something clicks for Matthew, and you know, this is the Holy Spirit working, but it's also, I think, the way God had worked in Matthew's life. It's almost like something triggered. I remember another name from the Old Testament. His name shall be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, isn't this cool? This is Matthew, right? Do you remember anything about Matthew? Matthew the tax collector. You have to say that with disdain. And, and not, I don't even mean like the modern tax, like, you know, we may have certain feelings on paying taxes, but it's nothing compared to what they thought, right? The Jewish people, the Israelite nation had been taken over by the Roman Empire. The tax collectors were Jewish people that worked for the Roman Empire ex- Extorting money from their fellow Jewish people to say they were hated is an understatement. And this guy that was so hated in his own people, somehow, some way, as he was writing this down, thought, God with us. God came to be with us. I say that to help us understand what Matthew's going through and what he's thinking, but also to help you understand. You might be here going, I can't get this whole Bible thing, this whole Jesus thing, Christmas thing. I'm just not smart like that. I'm not deep like that. This is Matthew, the tax collector. If he can do this, you can too. You can dig into Scripture. His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And I want to look at these two names because the other name he gives is, is the one that the angel tells Joseph uh, to name Jesus. His name shall be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Did you know that's, that's literally what the name Jesus means? In, in Hebrew, it would have been Joshua. And it means he saves. So here we have two key names of Jesus. He saves and he is God with us. What does it mean for God to be with us. And I want us to look at understanding the biblical understanding of the source of life. Because I believe this is crucial to understand what Matthew was saying here and what Isaiah was saying in the Old Testament that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So flip back with me to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
He sets up this creation, and throughout Scripture, this theme is picked up. We just take this as two different places, but in the Jewish mindset, it meant a lot more. The heavens are always referred to as the place of God's dwelling, and the earth is the place of our dwelling. So we have God's dwelling and our dwelling. And then he goes on, and in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, in the earth, on the earth, he creates the Garden of Eden. And we know looking ahead a little bit to Genesis chapter 3, this was a place where God would walk in the garden and meet with Adam and Eve. Now, by the time we get to Genesis 3.8, that's not such a good thing because they've really messed up. But this picture of God creating heavens and earth and a garden where he will meet with his people is such a beautiful picture. God wants to be with us. Creation is structured, it is ordered. The the places of creation are set up so that God put us, Adam and Eve, humanity, in a place where he could meet with them, to be with them. God uses these things to teach us about the relationship that he wants to have with us. He goes on and he tells us some things that he puts in the Garden of Eden. If you look at chapter 2, verse 9 of Genesis... It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. These trees that were put in the garden were there so that God could teach us more about our relationship with him. Now understand, I just want to clarify because people always ask me questions when I talk about this. I believe these were real trees. I believe there's a real garden. I believe there's a real Adam and Eve. The reason I believe that is that it's in the Bible, and I believe the Bible, and that's just the way it is. Okay? That being said, I also think these things have profound symbolic meaning. They are not just symbols. It's a real tree, real Adam, real Eve. Okay? All existed. But God is the author of all creation. He puts them there to teach us things. Real tree that we can look at with real meaning. You with me so far? Okay. Trust me, this all has to do with Christmas. And not just because of trees. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. And he talks about the tree of life. Why a tree of life? Think about their culture. These are people, most of them were farmers. Raised livestock. One of the things that consumed their day-to-day lives was trying to to survive. And the thing that consumed most of their time trying to survive was finding food. Where can we get food? Now, here's where we struggle with this. We struggle more with opening the fridge or or the pantry or walking down the aisles of Wagmans and go, which one do I want? They're just going, what can I possibly eat? And so a picture is given to them of a tree that bears fruit constantly. If you're starving, you live your life trying to figure out where you're going to get your next meal, how you're going to uh, give food to your kids. Think of what this picture meant. An unending supply of food. The tree of life is this idea of constantly giving life. It is an ongoing source of life. Later on, he's going to describe rivers running through the garden. It's the same idea later on in Scripture. We talk about the river of life, this unending giving of fresh water to drink, to cook, this constant source of life and the giving of life from God. He also puts in that garden the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a source of or a standard of good 
and evil. Now, that's the thing that God said, that's not for you. Adam and Eve, that's not for you. They were not to claim the standard of good and evil. They were not to grab onto it and say, we get to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and evil. That wasn't for them. Why? Because that's God's job. That's God's job alone. He says, this is right, this is wrong, this is reality, this is not reality, this is truth, this is a lie. We don't get to say that. We really screw that up in our culture today. And let's be honest, we all screw that up in our own lives. We want to say, this is what I think, therefore this is the way it is. And God goes, "Um, no, I'm God and you're not. And, And we all need to remember that. And so we have these true, or these two trees. Now, I want you, and the reason I'm focusing us on the garden is that I want to ask you this question. Did God give to Adam and Eve everything they need for life? And the answer is yes. Was their life sustained by the things God gave them, or is he teaching them something even deeper? Let me answer that one for you. The gifts are only as good as the giver. What God is teaching us throughout all of Scripture, and it starts right here in the Garden of Eden, is not, thank you, God, for your gifts. This is what I need. It's, God, you are the giver. You are the source of life. The Garden of Eden was what it was because God made it that way. The tree was what it was because God made it that way. The river flowed because God made it that way. The source of their life was not the tree and the fruit. It wasn't the river. It was God. The Garden of Eden was so amazing because God was there. He created it to be with his people. This is what we see throughout Scripture. Where God is present where he makes his presence known, life overflows in abundance. Where we go our own way and do our own thing and ignore him, death comes. God is the source and sustainer of all life. The perfect, holy God created us to live in his life-sustaining, life-giving presence forever. That's what the Garden of Eden is all about. That's the picture that is set up at the very beginning of Scripture. Now, this has implications. I've never been to England. It'd be cool to go sometime. I've never seen a king or a queen. I I guess they have them in other places other than England. I imagine, though, As a tourist, you don't just show up and like waltz into the throne room. Like, hey, queen, what's up? Can I get your autograph, right? I mean, you don't just walk in and like your your cut-off shorts and your your T-shirt and just kind of waltz in and be like, hey, can can I have some of your tea? There's protocols. There's, There's certain standards to be in the presence of someone that important. There are certain standards you have to meet. Now, that is a feeble, silly illustration, but now let's take that to God. What does it mean to be in the presence of the almighty, all-holy, perfect God? In Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, we see a picture of the presence of God. And it's one of these mind-blowing, almost frustrating pictures because we can't quite grasp what's going on. 
but it's a picture of the throne room of heaven. And there are these four heavenly beings and they look crazy amazing. But what's really important is what they are calling out continually in the very presence of the holy God. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, hopefully we all know God is holy, right? I mean, that's, that's no eye-opening revelation there. God is holy. Hopefully you also understand that holiness means without sin. Okay, so God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. There is no sin in God. But it's so much more than that. I don't think saying that holiness means without sin goes nearly far enough. This would be like saying that light means without darkness. Which is true, but you don't lighten up a room by erasing more of the darkness. You lighten up a room by Increasing the light. Now, when we come to God's holiness, we have to understand how incompatible holiness and sin truly are. You see, light and dark cannot coexist. They are absolute opposites of each other. The more light you have, by necessity, the darkness will be erased. It cannot stay. You with me? It's the same way with God's holiness. God's holiness cannot coexist with sin. It is absolutely incompatible. It is not a product of the anger or the wrath or the impatience of God saying, I'm just done with your sin. It is the nature of his holiness. When sin comes into the holiness and the presence of God, it is miserable for the sinner. Because sin and holiness cannot coexist. God is our life. He is the source of all life. We are created to live forever in his holy presence. But that picture that I just laid out for you, which is amazing and is the very beginning of all scripture and is brought up again and again throughout all scripture, all you got to do is turn on the TV, check the news, talk to your family, or look in the mirror to say, that's not what I'm seeing in the world today. Something is broken. You see, if God is the source of all life, if his presence is what gives life, brings life, sustains life, we need to come to grips with the fact that we have gone our own way. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Adam and Eve go their own way. They take the thing that God had reserved for himself, the thing that God had told them not to do, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they take the words of the serpent, who's later identified as Satan himself, saying, when you eat it, you will be like God. And they say, that looks good. That sounds good. I like this. I'm going to judge that what God said to me is either wrong or it's maybe not best. I know better. And Adam and Eve took matters into their own hand and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose their own way rather than God's. Now, if God's way is life, if his presence is life-giving, life-sustaining, and you choose to go some other way, here's the path of life, 
I want to go that way. What else is left? Are not, or is not any other path other than God's a path of death? A path away from life? How many times do we get so frustrated with God or, or we meet people that are so mad? How is it fair that he does this? How is it fair that, that he punishes us for our sins? How is it fair that the punishment for sin is death? Wait a minute. We chose to leave God's way and go our own way. His way is life and we chose something else. And yet we want to say it's not fair. The results of that original sin are disastrous. And they still go on moment by moment in our lives today. Genesis 3, 14 through 19, the life that was full of blessing is now full of hardship. Genesis 3, 8 through 13, the relationships that were perfect between Adam and Eve and God and Adam and Eve and each other and even Adam and Eve and creation. Now it's all messed up. Sin has entered the world. And finally, in Genesis 3, 23, Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. The place of God's presence, the place of being personally, intimately right there in the life-giving presence of God, now they are kicked out. Death has entered the world. This is our own way. Anything that is not God's way is the way of death. That is not God being mean and awful and judgmental. It is simply God being God. As the author of life, he created us to live in his presence and we said, thank you, but no thanks. I want to do my own thing. Romans 3.23, for all of sin. Romans 6.23, and the wages of sin is death. Our own way separates us from God. There's a, a barrier between us and God. It's like Isaiah 59, verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Don't miss the implications here. We were created to live in God's holy, life-giving presence, but we chose and still choose to live life on our own, separate from God. Imagine for a second, I didn't like the way the lights look in this room. And so I take a, a, a covering, a paper, a cloth of my choosing, and I go around, and on each one of these lights on the ceiling, I somehow get up there, and I cover, and I tape over each one. I go up to the spotlights, and I tape them over. I, I cover the tree with, with this cloth. I go to all of the windows, even the big ones up there. I cover them all up. I cover the projector. I cover all of the lights because I just don't like them. I like the way this fabric looks. This is so much better. And what's going to happen in the room? It's going to be awful dark, isn't it? So I get all done and I cover the last light and then I turn and I face the room and it's pitch black. And I go, wait a minute, this isn't fair. And now I can't see. And I start wandering around and I knock my shin against the, the chairs. I stumble over the stage here. I fall and break my guitar. That'd be dreadful. I, you know, all, all these horrific things happen. And what do I do? Do I go, well, it's really dumb to cover the lights. Well, that would be the logic thing to do. The human thing to do is to say, how dare people turn out the lights? It's not fair. I should be able to get what I want, but it's not fair now that I'm stumbling around in the darkness. This is the situation we live in today. 
We are separated from God. We have walked away from the source of life. We are experiencing the ongoing effects of death and its workings in this world. And yet we complain about it and want to blame everybody else, even blaming God. And so we try to find something. We try to find something to hold on to, something to make ourselves feel better. Throughout Scripture, this is known as idolatry. They would go after other gods and other goddesses. If I just worshipped in this way, if I just sacrificed an animal in this way, if I just went and offered this incense, then my crops would grow and my children would be healthy and, and, and good things would happen. If I could just find the right way, the right God, the right way to find blessing in this life. And we look at that and go, that's just so dumb. I mean, those people were so backwards. That's silly. That's not the way to be happy. The way to be happy is if we could just find the right education and the right job and the right amount of money and the right car and the right cell phone and and all these things today, then we'll be happy. And I think if those people could come and look at us, they'd be like, well, that's silly. Our way is no more right than their way. It's still chasing after things on our own way to try to fill the hole that was left when we walked away from God. We constantly think we can fix ourselves. We are searching for what was lost in the Garden of Eden. We are constantly searching for a substitute source of life. The source of life that we were created for to live in the very presence of God for eternity. Now in that picture, which is bleak, and we don't like it, and it's hard, but in that picture, and that world, and those humans, just like us, now go back to Matthew chapter 1. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Is that comforting? Absolutely. Does it mean we're not alone? You betcha. But it means that us living as rebels, walking, running as far away from God as we possibly can, trying to find our own substitutes and arrange our own lives while ignoring him, it means that he came to us. The source, the author, the giver of life came to us in our death and our lostness. God with us. After Adam and Eve sinned, they're banished from the garden, and it looks like all is lost. Well, I guess it didn't work. God's plan failed. And then we could skip forward to Genesis chapter 12, and he reaches out to this guy named Abraham, and he says, I'm going to have a covenant with you. You and your people, you're going to be my people. And then fast forward, he rescues them out of Egypt where they had become enslaved. Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he says, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Israel will be different. The people of Israel will be different. Why? Because they're much more holy than everybody else. No! Because God's with them. His presence is right there. Then he gives them the law and he says, you living as my people will make you different. And this is what it's going to look like. 
And one of the key things in the law is setting up this tabernacle and eventually the temple that God would live among them. Exodus 25, verse 8, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Being in the presence of God is complicated as sinners. There's certain things that that are normal and natural to us that, that are incompatible with who he is. And so in his mercy and his love and his grace, he gave them the law to say, don't do these things. Because those are incompatible with my holiness. This is how you are to live. Because you are to be my holy people. But they were still sinful people living in the presence of a holy God. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Something amazing happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Because for so much of Scripture... What God had told them about living in his holy presence and being holy people was about things to quit doing. Don't do these things, they make you unholy. Don't touch these things, they make you unholy. Don't eat these things, they make you unholy. Stay away from these things. But something happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision where he's brought into the very throne room of God. Let's start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of his voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook. And the temple was filled with smoke. And Isaiah's response, cool, this is great. I'm in the very presence of God. Awesome, God, check me out, I'm here. Man, so much of our modern worship music is just garbage. Sorry, side note. You don't waltz into the presence of God and say, God, how awesome am I? Look at what Isaiah does. Because Isaiah gets something that we don't get. Verse 5, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Because Isaiah got something. Sin and holiness are incompatible. He's in the very unrestrained, unveiled presence of the all-holy God, and he is a sinner. And he knows what's about to happen. He is about to die. Period. This is the end of Isaiah. But then something amazing happens. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Here's Isaiah properly understanding that he is a sinful man standing in the presence of an all-holy God and going, I'm ruined. And yet God, from his presence, he does something to fix the situation. He says, Isaiah, you need to understand something else about salvation and holiness. It's not just about staying away from wrong things. It's that I will do something that saves you. God takes action to save Isaiah. And it all takes place 
in the very presence of the all-holy, all-powerful God. Now we look back at Matthew chapter 1. Because these two names given to Matthew, or I'm sorry, to Jesus, are so crucial. The first name is Jesus. He saves. When we come into the very presence of God as sinners, our life is forfeit. We deserve to die. God has to take action to save us. And so God takes on flesh, is born in a manger, and he comes as Jesus, he saves. And he will live, and he will grow up, he will teach, he will show us God, and then he will go to the cross in our place. He is the coal from the altar. And it's his sacrifice, his death, his burial, and his resurrection that saves us. But he's not done. Says he will also be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Jesus is God's presence with us to save us, to restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden, to fulfill every Old Testament law and every single principle of the tabernacle and the temple. Jesus is God with us. He is the source of unending life. He makes us holy. Not just giving us a standard to live up to, to say, if you fall short of this, you're dead. He says, I know you can't live up to this. I will save you. I will bring you from death to life, back into the very presence of God. He makes us holy. That's why he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do you see it there? We read these statements and we go, oh, that's really sweet. And it is, but it's so much more. Jesus, being God with us, is so comforting. We are never alone. We are never lost beyond finding. We are never abandoned. These things are true, and I want you to hear the encouragement of that today. But I also want you to understand, when we come to that passage that says, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, that truth changes everything. Everything about who you are, everything about the world that we live in. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us to save, God with us to give life, God with us to bring his kingdom, his perfect life-giving rule over all of creation. One day, God's perfect holiness will shine out of God's perfect dwelling place. The barrier between us and his presence will be gone forever. And in that moment, All of darkness will be removed. No more sin, just perfect holiness. And on that day, those changed by Jesus, saved from sin and made holy, remade to be able to stand in the perfect presence of an all-holy God, will welcome that presence and that unending source of life. Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. You have taught us so much about who you are, 
And I thank you that the, the further we go and the more we see the connections between what you, you did through these typical Sunday school stories that some of us have been brought up with and others are just learning for the first time. And we can learn these basic things and be encouraged by them and challenged by them. But that we, we can also see the grand, incredible work that you are weaving together throughout all of history to show those who are lost in darkness, to show those who went their own way, which is true of all of us apart from Jesus, to show us who you are and the kind of relationship you want with us and that what it takes for us to get there. And God, we come to that point and we say we can't do it. We can't save ourselves. We can't keep ourselves alive. We need Jesus. He saves. And Emmanuel, God with us. And on that Christmas morning, you gave us the gift that we truly needed. And I pray, Father, this morning, if there's anyone here who has not accepted Jesus as their Savior, Jesus as their Emmanuel, may this Christmas be the Christmas they can truly celebrate. That light has come. That life has come. That we can be brought from death to life forever and ever. In your name we pray. Amen.